0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Pantassi. My guest today is Caitlin Knox, the author of Race on Display in 20th and 21st Century France, and the book was published by Liverpool University Press in 2016. Hi there, Caitlin. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France?
1: Sure. So actually, for me, studying French has always gone hand in hand with studying West African culture. So when I was growing up, uh, my mom actually worked in the public health field where she worked with families from West Africa, uh, living in the United States. And I quickly realized kind of at a crucial point when I had to choose between taking French and Spanish, that studying French could actually be a way to learn more um, about West African culture. You know, studying French, I would try to converse with families from West Africa, and that eventually cultivated in a study abroad program that I did during my undergraduate degree, um, where I studied in Cameroon. And there I actually got interested in the popular culture and literature of West Africa, especially Cameroon and the Ivory Coast. And it was there that I was actually introduced to Coupe de Calais music, um, Mm. which was pretty widespread throughout West Africa at the time, throughout the rest of my undergraduate career, and then in the beginning of my graduate career, I kept studying Coupe de Calais, which is actually one of the only popular music movements, West African popular music movements that started in France. Hmm. Um, And so for me, that was a way to segue into studying French popular culture and also the popular culture and literature of um, West Africans and Central Africans living in France.
0: So, Caitlin, this book looks at francophone literature, art, dance, music, and fashion to explore, and I'm quoting you here, the relationship between the gaze, display, and notions of race and national identity in post-colonial France. And you open and close the book with a discussion of a recent art performance uh, by Brett Bailey called Exhibit B. Could you tell us a little bit about that performance and how you're using it to kind of frame or present the questions that you explore in the book?
1: Yeah, so Exhibit B, like you mentioned, is a performance art piece created by a white South African artist, Brett Bailey, and it's really a multi-layered object that precisely gets at these larger problematic issues surrounding the gaze and display, as well as power and agency. So um, just to give a little background on the actual performance art piece itself, so it was a traveling performance art piece that moved from Europe primarily European city to European city. Um, And in the piece itself, it's set up as a series of different rooms that are kind of like dioramas or tableaus, um, as the piece calls them. Mm -hmm. And so the visitor walks into these different rooms And each of these rooms features a black specimen, quote unquote, um, on display. And so these these specimens take uh, or draw their inspiration from the various ways that European art or even news media has represented black bodies historically and in the present day. And they draw from a variety of historical period, genres, styles. So for instance, um, in one of the rooms, the visitor walks in and sees what looks like Um, decapitated heads sitting on pillars so it echoes a museum display in another room, the visitor would see a bare chested colonial servant chained to a bed um, and she looks in a mirror um, and her she's looking at a mirror at the spectator um, behind her or in some others, you might see a black man sitting on airplane seats uh, with his mouth duct taped and his arms zip tied mm-hmm. um, to the chairs so these recall the deportation of of migrants. And nothing in the beginning of the exhibit actually indicates that these people are real or alive, um, but they are. And the only instructions that Brett Bailey gives his performers is you need to look at the spectator directly in the eyes and don't lower your gaze ever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes it takes the spectator little while to realize that these performers are actually live people because they imitate so well the dioramas or museum displays or news media kind of photography that we see pretty much daily and so for two years this exhibit traveled throughout europe to wide acclaim so a lot of people even in france said this is wonderful um the main point of the exhibit as Bailey outlined it, was to get white spectators, he didn't necessarily say white, but the majority of his spectators were white, especially in the beginning. Um, so get his spectators to realize that they gaze upon people in these ways all the time mm. um, and to realize that this is a ubiquitous gaze that doesn't normally get even recognized and certainly not critically examined and so a lot of the art history or performance art or cultural studies scholars celebrated this performance art piece in the beginning and then in 2013 and 2014 the performance art piece was widely criticized especially in London and Paris Mm -hmm. um And this raised larger questions uh, about the agency of the performers, um, the racial dimensions of the interaction between the performers and the director. Especially in France, for instance, CON, a black rights group or uh, umbrella group, let's say, in France, criticized the fact that in order to critique the gaze, so if that's the ultimate goal of this exhibit, the performance recreates this gazing dynamic. And so this raised larger questions about, well, how can we engage the gaze Mm
0: -hmm.
1: without merely reproducing the same power dynamics um, that are so problematic? And so I use that precisely as a way to open up these larger questions um, without necessarily being able to neatly resolve them. My book is looking at how minority authors and artists raise these same questions without necessarily definitively resolving them either.
0: And you really emphasize this idea of you know, spectacle in, in the book. And you make this distinction in the book, Caitlin, between institutional spectacle And this term that you use or this phrase that you use um, throughout the book, institutionalized spectacularism. So before we go any further, if we could just lay a bit of groundwork here um, in terms of what institutional spectacle is as you're using it and thinking about it and what institutionalized spectacularism is as you're using it and thinking about it and what the distinctions are between those two things.
1: Yeah, so this book is much more interested in looking at the gaze, the politics of display that produces um, notions of Frenchness and of otherness. And the way that I'm setting that up in the book is like you say, opposing institutional spectacles to institutionalized spectacularism. So, for me, institutional spectacles are these explicit moments, primarily government sponsored moments, when racialized bodies are put on display. Mm-hmm. So, the main example uh, that I look at in the book is the 1931 Colonial Exposition. Mm-hmm colonized performers were brought to France um, and basically put in diorama-like conditions and told to perform their authentic culture for a French viewing public. Mm -hmm. So that's explicitly a moment Of spectacle. The French viewing public is brought to the Bois de Vincennes to look at colonized others. But what I'm trying to do with institutionalized spectacularism is say that that explicit way of looking and putting others on display also seeps into the larger culture around it, even if it's less Explicit and less visible. And so there I look at the different ways in which we can, we can say, for instance, news media continues to have this othering gaze, but it's not necessarily one main event where someone can point to and say that is a spectacle, Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm hoping with the shift from spectacle to spectacularism to describe something that's more pervasive, it's a series of nodes rather than kind of one main thing that we can point to.
0: So Caitlin, a lot of ink has been spilled about what the kind of constraints are for thinking or doing scholarship on race in France, particularly given the you know so-called colorblind uh, society that France at least. Claims to be so. I guess before we go any further, we should talk a little bit about how you're using the term race uh, in the book. And you know, one of the things that you say in the introduction is that race is inclusive in this book.
1: Yeah. So this is a very important question. So my book is building on uh, recent development, or let's say since the 1980s, of looking more at uh, looking more at racial minorities in contemporary France. Um, And like you mentioned, France has a reigning Republican universalist model that denies race as a politically or socially salient. Um, or powerful category. Mm -hmm. And so France differs from, for instance, the United States, where the United States, even if problematic, still collects racial and ethnic data on the census, for instance, whereas in France, it's illegal to collect data on someone's race, ethnicity, or religion. Mm -hmm. And so this poses a couple of problems, especially for populations for whom, or have particular experiences, that are defined by what they term as their race because in France that can't necessarily be quantified Mm -hmm. using a vocabulary of race and so In the book, especially in the later chapters, or in particular the last chapter, I look at how France's colorblind universalist model still nevertheless discusses race just through problematic proxies. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, immigration functions somewhat as a proxy for race in in contemporary France. Mm -hmm. But my book is also building on this um, scholarship that explicitly defines itself as black France scholarship Mm -hmm. um, by saying it's really important that we point out the long history of black individuals and racial minorities in contemporary France and their contributions to France and French culture, but at the same time continuing to talk about race only as a question of blackness continues to reinforce this idea um, that there is some sort of normalcy from which these racial minorities depart. So Mm. continuing to point out um, that racial and ethnic minorities are not necessarily immigrants or are not necessarily not French, continues to reinforce this idea that this equation between whiteness and Frenchness in some ways. And so my book is looking not just at racial and ethnic minorities, but also how race um, operates in uh, contexts of display in twentieth um, and twenty-first century France, and so I think one of the main contributions that my book makes is to turn the tables around and look precisely at whiteness mm-hmm. and adding in the relationship between whiteness and Frenchness to the discussion of race in contemporary France.
0: So the book, Caitlin, is structured in these two sections, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the decision to set it up this way. The first section. In which you talk about, among other things, the colonial exposition of 1931, focuses on these institutional spectacles that that you just uh, outlined for us. The distinction between that and institutionalized uh, spectacularism, and then the second section is really more focused on this, you know, these acts of speaking out um, and this question or challenge of, you know, how the speaking out of minorities can also be a bit of a trap. So, could you talk a little bit, just sort of broadly, about the structure of the book and how you decided to organize these chapters? Sure. So I think actually
1: it might be easier to outline how the two sections are different, not Mm -hmm. just chronologically, but by starting with the second section. Mm. Um, So Broadly speaking, the works that I study in the second section actually respond to the works that I study in the first section Hmm. by asking, not just asking on what terms can racial and ethnic minority um, authors and artists make themselves visible, in contemporary France. So that's more the first part. But the second part, um, the works that I study add an additional question, which is how am I as the artist or how is my work actually participating in recreating the same gazing dynamics that I would actually like to dismantle? Mm -hmm. So for instance, in the first half of the book I set up how French culture around a particular institutional spectacle creates the larger the larger conditions of institutionalized spectacularism through comic books particularly mm-hmm. before then moving to works of immigrant literature that call into question reigning stereotypes about um, racial and ethnic minorities in France and also immigrants. But then those works, while they contest reigning stereotypes about racial and ethnic minorities and their equation with immigrants, they're admitted to the French cultural marketplace on certain terms, namely that they be more autobiographical or ethnographic, that Mm -hmm. they tell some sort of real story, Um, whereas the works that I then move to in the second half of the book... Raise the larger issue of why is it that racial and ethnic minorities have to necessarily tell a real, Mm -hmm. a real story, a true story about what life is like to be a racial or ethnic minority? And is that in and of itself a larger component of institutionalized spectacularism?
0: So let's talk a little bit, Caitlin, about the chapters of the book, sort of individually. In the first chapter of the book, "Civilized into the Civilizing Mission," you talk about the gaze, colonization, and um, exposition colonial children's comics. So, could you talk a little bit about the choice to focus on children's comics and how that emphasis on how children, how French children were socialized into the imperial gaze, fits into your larger argument? Sure.
1: So if Uh, My ultimate goal is uh, in the book is to get at the gazing dynamics of 21st century France. And part of my argument is that now these gazing dynamics are so pervasive Mm -hmm. that they evade critical scrutiny, I needed to go back and look at how the gaze moved from explicit to implicit. So like I mentioned before, the 1931 exposition is really a a moment that we can point to and say, this is when racialized bodies were put on display for the consumption of French spectators. Mm -hmm. But because my book is looking at larger institutionalized spectacularism, I wanted to take that moment that has been addressed comprehensively in scholarship and look at the larger uh, cultural objects around it and look at how institutional spectacle also is surrounded by a larger culture of institutionalized spectacularism. And I think the comics in particular seem on their surface so innocent, but yet they carry a lot of really important messages about who has the right to look who is the object of the gaze mm-hmm. and and the politics of surveillance of bodies in France. And so I wanted to tease out these larger issues a little bit more and then these, you know, young people reading the comics are then going to become the adults as we move later into the Late 20th century, so mm. this is the heritage that uh, an older generation of France, uh, or French people, share. Um, and I think, in particular, what I, I didn't expect to find this, but what I found, or seemed to find, when I returned to these children children's comics, was in some ways they actually explicitly stage uh, uncomfortable moments for children, so that they can reassure their young reader that it's not only okay to gaze, but it's actually required to gaze.
0: So you look at a number of different things in that chapter, including you know, music and, and a range of different comics, but I guess to focus on one example, which is probably the one that people know, are most familiar with, is Tintin au Congo. Could you talk a little bit about how you use that text at, in, in the chapter? Sure, yeah. So Tantau Congo
1: is obviously now a very notorious example of um, racist children's comics. Um, And so... At the time, from what I could find, looking at a broader corpus of, of children's comics and um, children's magazines, Tantan Congo really participates in this larger culture of wireism and uh, armchair travel that was aimed at children. Um, so the colonies didn't just come to them in the form of the 1931 exposition, but they went to the colonies mm-hmm. to see what was "Quote unquote," really going on there, um, and so Tantao Congo, among other comics, are fairly problematic in that they rehearse racist stereotypes about Africans, depict Africans as children, and also reinforce certain stereotypes of white superiority. So it's at once giving children a very skewed sense of what it life is "quote unquote" really like in the colonies, um, but it's also serving a larger imperial purpose of um justifying france's imperial project and so i was not only interested in uh what happens in Tantaho congo just as an object but also or as a as a literary or um cultural work but also Tantau Congo's larger life as a cultural object within different marketplaces. Mm-hmm. And so there I read Tantau Congo in its historical context, but then I also, towards the end of the chapter, look at two moments, um, one in uh, Great Britain and one in France, when um, individuals actually brought lawsuits against Tanta or uh, various publishers or uh, outlets that were selling the comic book to have the work censored and removed from bookshelves. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is actually really illustrative of the work um, that my book is doing as a whole, because this moment of potential censorship raises larger, those same larger issues that I was talking about earlier with Brett Bailey's Exhibit B. So how do we at once criticize racist ideas or racist gazes without reproducing those same racist ideas or racist gazes? Um, and so the the court case in England um, actually resulted in Tanteo Kongo receiving a preface that mm-hmm. talks about Tanteo Kongo's racism and that talks about uh, how this was particularly, a, a, it's a product of its time. Mm-hmm. So situating what the contents of the work within its historical context, whereas the, the French one was not required to receive such a preface. And so this raises larger issues precisely about, you know, children having not yet been able to or been taught uh, how to critically analyze and situate things within particular historical periods. So what do we do if our goal is to point out and name racism Mm -hmm. and to dismantle the gazing dynamics that reinforces it? How do we engage with um, racist material in the present day?
0: Right. So in the second chapter of the book, Caitlin, you look at post-colonial migritude works and uh, the sans-papier protests of the 1990s. And the chapter is called Self-Spectacularization and Looking Back on French History. So could you sort of give us a kind of broad definition of what self-spectacularization is and how it's working in this chapter?
1: So for moving from chapter one, where um, it's really a question of how our others put on display. Mm -hmm. The second chapter is moving then into how do people formerly depicted as others put themselves on display or how, on what terms can they speak out, make themselves visible, etc. And so this chapter is really um, drawing from two kind of streams at the same time. One is uh, French news media surrounding the Saint-Papier um, affair, especially the 1996 evacuation of um, Saint-Papier from a church mm-hmm. Uh, where the sans Papier were outnumbered three to one. And it was a very remarkable moment um, mm-hmm. that was televised uh, for French viewing publics. But then also this larger culture of speaking out or making yourself or um, immigrants, racial minorities visible through literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and there I'm looking at micritude novels in particular, um, which are generally like late 20th century works about immigration to France that are generally thought to depict certain uh, marginalized positionalities and to criticize the poor living conditions of people who migrate from particularly sub-Saharan Africa to France.
0: So in this chapter, Caitlin, this notion of writers writing to write, and I'm saying that so you can't see that it's writers, W-R, writing, W-R, to write, starting with an R. So could you tell us a little bit about where that comes from, what that means, and how it's working in in this chapter and maybe throughout the book?
1: Sure. So this notion goes along with what I was saying earlier about this idea of autobiography and ethnography expected of racial minority authors at a particular time. And so Migritude and uh, a lot of the works produced by um, racial and ethnic minority or even quote-unquote francophone authors at this time we're in many ways expected to conform pretty closely to an author's lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we not only have that expectation placed on authors and artists, um, but we also have news media and political discourse about immigrants to France. Um, and a lot of that discourse depicts migrants as illegal immigrants, um, Mm. and also dehistoricizes immigration. One of the things that we see a lot in the late 20th century literature and music is an emphasis on we, migrants, are here because you were there. Um, So this emphasis on migration especially post-colonial migration from sub-Saharan Africa, didn't happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. It is part of a much larger historical trajectory of French imperialism. So I use this phrase in this chapter to talk about uh, particularly the expectation that authors of the time write novels or literature in order to write that is correct this idea that post-colonial French migration is just exists in a historical vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, but that expectation in and of itself is in many ways a larger uh, symptom of institutionalized spectacularism because it reinforces this idea that racial and ethnic minority authors are Native informants about uh, what life is really like for sub-Saharan African um, peoples or for migrants to contemporary France.
0: I really thought about, as I was reading the book, and especially this chapter, although not only this chapter, thought about someone I interviewed several months ago, Catherine Kleppinger, and her work about the ways in which certain writers in contemporary France feel caught right, or expected to produce a certain type of literature that they can't write about other types of things, but at the same time feel that desire or urge to speak on behalf of communities or to address wrong. So I, I, I really saw the way in which your work fits with that interrogation of the minority writer and minority literature as, as, a, as a category. I hadn't thought too much about
1: it necessarily when I was originally selecting my corpus, but I'm really happy that I fortuitously ended up choosing to focus on J.R. S. Le Paradis du Nord, precisely because he fits into the category of micritude writers, but it's Unlike most other Migritude writers, especially like Calix Beala or Fatou Diom, who are very outspoken in news media and who are interviewed all the time about what life is, quote unquote, really like for migrants, Isomba categorically refuses to speak as a political or social representative for the populations that he supposedly belongs to um, and so through esomba we get a different perspective on who is actually writing and who and how different uh, authors ha- must or can speak out and mm-hmm. i think um, Eson-Bas is less studied than most of the other Migritude writers, and one of my kind of theories is that it's precisely because he doesn't go on news media, give interviews, and talk about what life is really like for him, or celebrate this autobiographical connection between his own life and his works, in the same way as other more celebrated and more well-known Migritude writers do.
0: Yeah, it's really an issue around which the kind of convergence of these realms that you're looking at, you know, news media, cultural marketplaces, and then what gets addressed in French and Francophone cultural studies, really comes together in that in that second chapter. Moving into the second part of the book, Caitlin, the third chapter brings together, well, a number of things, but especially literature, race, and fashion, reading Alain Mabocou's Black Bazaar. So could you talk a little bit about Alain Mabocou, this 2009 novel, Black Bazaar, and how you're using it to bring together some of these themes and questions?
1: Yeah, so the third chapter, like I said before, is really the turning point of the book. So from here on out, we're not just going to see authors and artists who are interested in investigating questions of race and Frenchness um, in their works, but also use their works to ask But am I also reinforcing the same gaze that Mm. I don't want to be subjected to anymore? Um, So Alain Obanku is a fascinating case. He's such a prolific writer. To date, he's published 11 novels, Mm. um, plus poetry and essays. So Black Bazaar in particular, is one of his more recent novels. And it's set in Jeeps, which is a real-life Afro-Cuban bar in Paris's first arrondissement. Yeah. Um, and the novel is just so over the top. Um, it <laughs> engages in caricatures, stereotypes, absurdity, and it basically investigate. it's basically limited to a Black French world. So all of the ca- characters are black and they discuss what it means to be black in France. Mm. It really explodes some of the stereotypes or some of the images of um, blackness that were created and reinforced through migritude. So we get a real heterogeneity of a black community in France. They're all from different uh, countries. They all have different immigration statuses. Um, some of them are mix of mixed race and None of them agree on what it means to be black in France. At the center of this novel, we have his French name is Fessologue, which has been translated as botologist, which just illustrates right off the bat Mabonku's humor here. Um, and he really plays the role of um, the native informant author uh, figure, but he's also a sapeur. So a sapeur, it was a 19, or it originated in the 1970s as a cultural phenomenon known as la SAP, la Société des Ambianceurs et des personnes Élegantes. So people who create ambiance uh, and Elegant people. And its main thrust was primarily a cultural um, phenomenon among young Congolese men who would travel to France or otherwise acquire French designer or label clothing in order to um, perform. Uh, meticulously curated outfits. Mm. And so they would construct their outfits in order to maximize shock value when they performed their outfits for a live audience. And often they would compete against other sapo and they had uh, different... groups that they belonged to, and they would try to beat the rival groups through their fashion, um, composition, and Mm. dance. And so in my reading of Black Bazaar, I read the novel as actually as literary sap, so through kind of the center of Fessologue. There's one particular scene in the novel that illustrates, I think, the novel's force, where um, he has dressed up to the nines, um, all designer labels, to go to this party and he decides that instead of taking a taxi, which he could have easily done, he's going to walk to maximize shock value so that everyone can see him. <laughs> um, and he gets to the Gare du Nord and realizes that the workers are, or he doesn't realize it, sorry, the workers are on strike but he doesn't know it. Um, and so he's waiting for a train and all of the other passengers around him are getting angry and Um, at a certain point, all of the passengers turn to him and start yelling at him about why are you on strike? Why aren't you working? Why are, why are you not taking me where I want to go? And he realizes comically that his outfit was of the same color as the (laughs) railway workers uniforms. And so as people are approaching him to look at his outfit, he starts performing, um, And revealing the the designer labels of his clothing, but none of the spectators understand what's going on. Mm. So they relegate his body uh, or read his body as a marker of um, a black laborer in France and completely miss the whole um, message that he was trying to send Mm. through his designer label and the careful construction of his outfit. And so for me, that was really a key moment to get at the novel's larger commentary about how Black bodies and Black authors are read in France. Mm. So what I do with the rest of the chapter is basically say, in the same way as Um, Botologist carefully constructs his outfit in order to participate in creating this particular narrative about himself and his agency. Botologist, the author, references uh, literary works from various cultural canons Mm. in order to construct this larger argument about black bodies and how they're read in literary marketplaces.
0: You go on in the book, Caitlin, to talk about Leonora Miano's blues poellis uh, and this idea of an afro mediascape. So could you tell us a little bit about this notion of Afropia and then how you're using Miano's work to illuminate that notion? So
1: afro is actually a term that was first outlined in the musical uh, realm mm-hmm. with a, a work by Zap Mama produced by David Byrne. And Byrne understood... Afropean to be more European of of African heritage. In her more theoretical nonfiction writings, Miano has drawn on this term and defines it as essentially French-born individuals of African descent. Mm. Um, And unlike previous generations, Afropeans are French. Uh, so, they didn't migrate themselves. They are French. They feel French. Um, and so, in Blues Poilies, her main focus is on Afropean women, primarily urban, bourgeois, hip, quote unquote, normal women that live in Paris. And uh, so, what, what she's doing with Afropia there is really radically departing, or so critics have said, from the the traditional stereotype about black communities in France and stereotypes associating those communities with um, poverty, exclusion, marginalization. What I see Miano doing is um, really engaging or picking up the conversation I left off in chapter two, um, which is how and on what terms are minorities visible in France from a news media or broadcast media perspective? And so the novel is actually structured as a music album. So each of the chapters ends with uh, what she calls an ambiance sonore, which Mm. gives the titles and and artists for each of the musical um, works referenced in the preceding chapter. The table of contents at the end of the novel actually um, doesn't contain the last chapter, which... If you look at the t- the title page of the chapter itself, is called a bonus chapter, much like a bonus you would find a bonus track on right. a CD, um, or on a music album. And so, uh, I read that novel as actually constructing a larger mediascape centered around these young, strong, powerful, rich, uh, Afro-Asian women in order to. Call into question the larger ways um, in which Black populations are made visible on French television or in uh, music.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I could ask you about this at other points in the in the book, Caitlin, but this chapter in particular, you know, makes me want to ask about how you are negotiating, in a kind of broad sense, mm-hmm. this book about. That is ostensibly about race with other categories of identity and difference like class and gender and the roles that they played in your thinking about race throughout the book. That's a huge question. But if you have anything you want to say about that in a kind of broad sense.
1: Yeah, This is a question that has come up especially in relation to Afropea recently because Afropean is generally thought to be more um, of a higher socioeconomic class Mm. anyway and so especially because there is this presumed mobility um, or let's say Afropeans especially as depicted in Miano uh, have much more Mobility than um, migrants depicted in Le Paradis du Nord. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's definitely a multi dimensional way of reading all of these issues. So I think you're right to point out that it's not just a question of race by itself, but rather a race. As it relates to economic status or uh, gender, et cetera.
0: In the last, uh, well, in chapter five in the book, Caitlin, you, I guess it's another way of sort of thinking about complicating these ideas that race isn't just non whiteness. Um, and the fifth chapter of the book is about, uh, or is the title of the fifth pa- chapter of the book is Anti White Racism Without Races. Could you tell us how your Interrogating uh, whiteness and racism in that in that fifth chapter of the book.
1: Sure. So that chapter um, was probably the most fun and exciting to write um, hmm. because it takes as its point of departure a 2010 court case that a an ultra conservative but supposedly anti-racist group known as uh, La Griffe, l'Alliance Générale Contre le Racisme et pour le Respect de l'Identité Française et Chrétienne, Mm -hmm. Um, so the the General Alliance Against Racism and for the Respect of French and Christian Identity. um, That group brought a court case against a sociologist, Saïd Bouamama, and rap singer Saïdou. So he's from the larger group ZEP, Zone d'Expression Populaire. That group brought a court case against those two men um, for their song entitled "Nique La France. And the thrust of the argument was... um, in saying "Nicolas La France, the men were uh, engaging in anti-white racism. Mm-hmm. But I quickly realized when uh, learning about this case that in order to take seriously that claim, you have to agree that insulting France is also insulting whiteness. And in order to make that leap, you have to say mm-hmm. that France is white. And so the argument that the conservative group brought to court was that they were insulting, quote-unquote, Francais de souche, so pure French stock. Mm. And that term is often opposed to another, uh, or it's often used as a proxy to talk about whiteness Mm -hmm. in France's colorblind universalist um, context, but it's also uh, often opposed to a different term, les issus de or les issues de Mm l'immigration, people whose heritage comes from immigration. Um, And so this court case allows me to open up, I think, what has been implicit, but always in the background of larger studies of Black France, which is where is whiteness and what role is whiteness playing in national identity? Mm -hmm. Um, And so this chapter then opens up into precisely a larger discussion of these problematic terms that get used as proxies for race and how this rhetoric of anti-white racism, which you find um, political figures claiming all over the news media, how that can actually exist in a larger context that denies race as a political or social category.
0: And you also, in this chapter, Caitlin, take on this notion of disciplinary institutionalized spectacularism and, you know, look at the ways that scholars of French cultural studies have to think about this problem and are in some cases... Reinscribing some of the problems. Um, so, how do you deal with that as a scholar of French cultural studies? Um, how do you deal with it in the chapter? And then, you know, what about the dilemma of working on this material and asking these questions and then potentially reinscribing some of the problems that you're trying to address? Like, how does that work for you
1: mm. or not? Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> no, this is something that. I realized pretty early on in the project um, that this notion, as you put it earlier, of race being something that only non white peoples have. In many ways, that idea perpetuates this idea that there is a normalcy from which racial and ethnic minorities depart. So when we talk about race, it's something that other people have. And the normalcy, the whiteness, is not often interrogated. There's actually a very robust corpus in the Anglophone realm dealing with whiteness studies and precisely pointing out this Supposed normalcy, and how race and ethnicity, or racial and ethnic minorities, become marked, and whiteness becomes the unmarked norm from which these um, others supposedly depart. But because of this, color blind versus color conscious. Divide where Mm. the the Anglophone realm is much more, quote-unquote, color-conscious, it's been really hard for the Whiteness Studies Scholarship to travel to France Mm. because it carries too much cultural baggage. So there's only been a handful of articles and one edited volume to date that really takes up this notion of how can we do Whiteness Studies in a context where race is not explicitly Mm. named and what kind of vocabulary must we use or can we use in a context that doesn't acknowledge race either from a political standpoint or even from a social or sociological um, research-driven standpoint. Mm -hmm. And my book, I think, is looking hopefully towards the future Um, Where it's reminding people that even in the discipline of French cultural studies, we need to remember that race is not just something other people have. Um, It's something that even in the French colorblind universalist model is still um, palpable, even if it's not explicitly addressed through racial terms. Mm -hmm. But then you also asked about my positionality, which I think is a very important question Mm. I definitely worried a lot, just like the authors that I studied, about um, to what extent does this research perpetuate um, the same types of dynamics that I'm hoping the larger theoretical project critiques or even undoes. Um, I don't know that I necessarily have uh, a definitive answer, but uh, I'm hoping that the project opens up or at least starts larger conversations um, around race. And I definitely, at various moments in the book, um, acknowledge my positionality. Um, Mm -hmm. In the beginning, in the introduction, I explicitly stated that I am coming at this project as a non-Black scholar. I was hoping that that would give readers pause because I think we tend to hear things about non-white scholars, about non-white peoples, etc. And that emphasis on the negative um, has been pretty thoroughly critiqued as it reinforces this idea of there being something lacking. I wanted to explicitly announce my positionality with respect to the works that I study and the ideas that I take up, but also echo this vocabulary in order to start larger conversations about race, positionality, and the complexity of working through these issues in the present moment.
0: And just kind of following up on that, you sort of brought us to the the outro. It's making me think about the connections between writing and music again. Um, that this outro uh, to the book, this sort of closing section of the book, that's titled Looking Back, Moving Forward. So you said something just now about... Uh, thinking about the future. And I guess I wanted to ask you in that last part of the book, you talk about these three ways of looking back. And throughout the book, this idea of looking back is kind of a motif that runs uh, through the chapters. Could you say a little bit more about the significance of that phrase and how you're using it in different ways and what it evokes for you and why why it's important in this project?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, Looking back, as you mentioned, is definitely a recurring motif throughout the book. So one of the main ways that it plays out in various chapters is looking back at history and acknowledging particularly France's colonial past in order to move forward in ways that is more representative of all of France's now peoples, um, and so one of the one of the particular moments that I mentioned in the outro is the 2011 cultural event um, organized in the Jardin d'Acclimatation to celebrate the year of the overseas territory, where um, performing art troops from various overseas territories were invited to essentially give performances um, and uh, share their culture with French spectators. Mm -hmm. Um, But the planners of the event chose the very same uh, site where 80 years earlier, people from those very same territories had been displayed as cannibals and savages in human zoos. and. Mm So this sparked outcry by not only um, political figures representing those um, overseas territories, but also historians um, and, and scholars more generally who asked that the um, administration choose a different site for the event or failing that, that they at least put up... Um, some sort of signage and engage critically with the history of that particular place. And the administration responsible for that cultural event decided to do neither, which... You know, raise larger questions about, well, where is this history visible in mm. contemporary France? Um, and so that was the inciting incident for a larger um, inquiry led by Francoise Vergès into um, steps that France could take to acknowledge its histories of human zoos um, and putting people's on display in order to make that history more visible. In the actual cityscape. Um, mm. And one of the things that Francoise Vergesse's report concluded was reinscribing this history is crucially important, not just because this history needs to be more widely known, but because it actually has. Um, identitarian consequences for um, peoples of color in contemporary France. So they don't feel like their history is represented. They don't feel like they have, um, the report actually uses the term juste de place. They don't feel like they have a place in French history Mm. or a space. Um, And so looking back really gets at this notion of a broader history in order to ensure that all of France's peoples now feel like they are represented uh, in history and national identity. Um, And then looking back a second way, gets back to something I outlined in the introduction, which is this notion of an oppositional gaze. Mm. So a lot of times um, when we talk about the gaze, it's not just one population gazing on another, but then uh, as the object of someone else's gaze, what can you do um, in order to contest your role as object? Um, and scholars have said, well, look back, because that is... is is." Uh, asserting your agency, your ability to look back um, and contest the terms by which you are only the gazed upon object. Um, And that is definitely important, but I don't think that's the only, or I don't think that's the end-all be-all. And so I'm hoping that my book will not just look at these moments of looking back historically or moments when the objects of gazes have looked back in order to challenge the power um, structures, but also a more inclusive looking back at the gazing dynamics themselves. So not just become locked up in this um, oppositional dynamic where one population looks and the other looks back. Uh, and there there might be some um, way forward there, but it allows the larger power structures um, responsible for creating that dynamic to evade scrutiny. So what I'm hoping is that we take up the call that the authors themselves are issuing, not just to look in those two ways, first two ways of looking back, but to join them and look back at the gaze or the the larger power dynamics themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. So Caitlin, I just have one last question, which is what are you working on now?
1: Well, I think inspired by uh kind of the second half of my book I'm now turning uh much more towards music and mm. in particular um this notion of mediation or media in afro populations. And so I'm just starting a second book project, uh, which is going to look at what I call the intermedial turn to the crossover turn in afro literature and music. Um, so it's basically in the first half going to look at literary works which are increasingly situating themselves between multiple media, um, looking Particularly at um, Bessora, again at Miano and Mabonku, mm-hmm. but then tracing a larger trajectory um, to even more contemporary authors, who. Uh, are actually depicted as rising literary talent, but they've been drawn more from the musical realm. So I'm interested in, for instance, uh, Malik, mm-hmm. Insassane, Edgar Secloca, who's a fantastic slammer, and a slam collective, Chant d'encre. Um, and so I'm asking. Why is it that literary publishers are drawing their talent from music or from the musical realm? Um, And then also uh, looking more closely at these um, more contemporary authors are publishing literary works and music albums simultaneously. And so what does it mean for a work to be intermedial and what do we do with these types of novel cultural objects?
0: Well, that sounds totally fascinating, and I hope you'll keep me posted on the progress of that new project. Caitlin, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. Thank you so much for having me.